Please turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading today of Psalm 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 11 this morning. We're going to continue in our study of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. I mentioned last week that the major theme of this letter is joy. I also mentioned last week that Christians have a really cool name that we can embrace because of the grace of God. It's called saint, which means holy one, that we are holy in Christ Jesus. That is who we are. That's who God declares us to be, and that's how we are to live in this world. We're to be set apart. That's what holy means. We're to be set apart in many, many ways. Um, we're to be set apart in our true integrity instead of masquerading, you know, being one person in public and then totally different person in private. We're, we're to be set apart in the fact that we're to be sexually pure and not to partake in sexual immorality, adultery, promiscuity. We're to have sober-mindedness and not partake in drunken debauchery. We're to honor our bodies as the temple of God. We're to be content with what the Lord provides instead of coveting that which belongs to our neighbors. We're to have clean mouths instead of profane lips. And the list goes on and on. We could be here all day talking about what all the, the different variations of what it means to be holy and set apart in McKinney, McKinney Texas and beyond. But one, one way, just another way, that we're to be holy and set apart, that I think this letter is really trying to emphasize verse after verse, is that we're to be people with steadfast joy in the midst of a world that is full of despair, a world full of people who are constantly looking for fleeting happiness and things that will never truly satisfy because it's not God. You can't fake true joy. I mean, you can try, but you can't, you can't actually 
fake it. it, it it's not manufactured joy. This is, we're talking about real joy, joy from the Lord, joy. Can't whip it up. You can't go through a drive-thru. I wish you could, you know, fast food drive-thru, just pull and say, I'll take a burger fries and then a side of joy would be fantastic. That would be helpful for me today. Don't work like that. It's not an instant pot. It's more of a crock pot in the process of experiencing joy. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 says, a fruit of the Spirit. It's an organic process. So if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap of the Spirit joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc., etc., joy. And if you don't sow to the Spirit, you won't reap, reap the fruit of the Spirit. That's just how it works. I found out, we just moved into our new house here in McKinney to be closer to you, and we found out that there's all kinds of stuff growing in our backyard. we got an apple tree, I think, right? Yeah, an apple tree. We've got uh, a peach tree. I don't know how to garden, so this is going to be an adventure, but I'm pretty sure sunlight and water is, you know, major prerequisites to a healthy plant or tree. And so, you know, I've got to invest in these shrubberies and trees in my backyard if they're going to stay there and they're going to stay healthy and produce fruit. It's the same with our spiritual life. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap the fruit of the Spirit. Why do I say all this? This is a very long intro. The point is, joy is from God. It's not just from Him. He, he, he's not just the object of our joy. He's the source of our joy and if you and I want to grow in joy this fall, which I'm confident you probably would like that, I, I sure would, then we need to walk with Jesus. We need to talk with Jesus. We need to be with people who walk and talk with Jesus. We need to seek Christ intentionally, both corporately and individually, if we were to know Christ intimately, that we might enjoy Christ more fully so that, don't miss this, we can rejoice in Christ continually. This letter encourages and reminds us that with our eyes opened and on Christ, just locked in on Him, we can. That we can rejoice in the Lord no matter what's going on in our life there's always that. And it doesn't mean that we're ignorant to the troubles in life. They're there, okay? It just means that we can be joyfully aware of Christ's presence and the provision of his grace in the midst of those difficulties and trials. That's a blessing. So look with me at Philippians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 11, and let's consider what's here that can really sincerely cause us to rejoice more in Christ. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, 
How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One of the things that is most encouraging to me personally about Christ Redeemer Church is that this is a praying church. All summer long, every Thursday night, the church gathered in our land at the property that we've got just north of 380, that that little farmhouse we got, and we prayed together, and we prayed for one another. Every Sunday morning here at Christ Redeemer Church, we have time set aside. You just experienced it for what is called a pastoral prayer, where myself or one of the other elders comes up here, John, this morning, and just praise to the Lord for us, for our gospel partners, for other local churches in the area that are teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel, and for anything else that the Lord's laid on our hearts this morning. What we're looking at this morning in this passage is a pastoral prayer. That's what it is. And so being the creative genius that I am, that's what I've entitled my sermon this morning, is a pastoral prayer. That's what it is, Okay. Let's look at it because Paul opens up in this pastoral prayer with a prayer of thanksgiving. He's thankful for the Philippians' partnership in gospel ministry. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So how did we get to a a prayer of thanksgiving? Thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness led to thankfulness. Paul is thinking about his people in Philippi. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. So this prayer emerges out of him, him thinking about his people. Every Sunday morning before I preach here, I'm committing this to you. This is what I've done the last couple weeks, is I I want to pray for you. And so I'm just working through that church directory, and I'm just praying for you. And I'm I'm not kidding. I just get more joy as I see your face, the pictures on there, and I get to pray for you and your family specifically. Paul's thinking about them. Verse 4, all of them. He says, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all. So it's not just some of the people in Philippi, it's all the saints in Philippi that Paul is thinking about and praying for. This prayer is powerful because it is both thoughtful and personal. So I want you to take inventory right now. I want you to think about the people that God's put in your life. The people that you've partnered in ministry with, your your spouse. And I want you to think about what they mean to you. I want you to think about what you've been through together. I want you to think about the the times where they stood with you when no one else did. That's what Paul's thinking through. That's why he is so grateful for the Philippians here. Because if you do that, if you take that time, no one has to tell you, hey, go, go pray to God a Thanksgiving prayer for those people. You just do it, right? It's it's the fruit that emerges from that thoughtful time of reflection. But I will tell you to do this. This is an exhortation. To you. Just as Paul 
let the Philippians know about his prayers of thanksgiving for them. You should let those people know that you are thankful for them. And you should let them know why you're thankful for them. And while you're praying a prayer of thanksgiving for them, let them know that you are in the midst of praying for them. Paul's thankful to the Philippians for their partnership. That's a reasonable reason to to be thankful for someone, right? Their, Their partnership in gospel ministry. He says, I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that word partnership, koinonia, it just means to share something in common. Partnership or koinonia, it occurs when two or more people share something in common, when they're a part of a joint venture. I want you to think of Peter and Andrew, James and John. They were in a koinonia. They were in a partnership. It was a fishing business. They were professional fishermen. They were literally in the same boat. And Paul and the Philippians are in a partnership. They are fishers of men. They're partnering in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To spread the message of the gospel to the whole world. I want to clarify something about their partnership because I think this can get really easily missed on churches. Their partnership was not sitting around and talking about the gospel together and being a church that dies together in the gospel. Their partnership was about going out strategically and faithfully with the gospel message, suffering for it, Dying for it even, so that more could come alive in Christ and that their fellowship could be with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and with them. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippians is very, very, very reasonable. They partnered with him in the gospel. It's more reasonable when you consider the end of verse 5. It says, from the first day until now. That's 10 years running of faithful partnership in gospel ministry. They loved Paul. They supported Paul. They suffered with Paul in gospel ministry for over a decade. Which is why Paul prays thanks for them, not just once, but perpetually. This is a prayer that is perpetual. Look at verse 4. Always, in every prayer of mine, So it's not a dead-end prayer, it's not a one-time prayer, it's a continual prayer because they continue to partner with him in ministry. And if you skip ahead and look at verse 7, you see that they continue to partner with him in ministry through the, the good times and the bad times. Not just when it's easy, but everything in between those things. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul's prayer climaxes as a joyful prayer. The joy is building even as he is praying. He says, making my prayer with joy, verse 4. So there it is, the fruit. Joy is the fruit of his thoughtfulness. His thoughtfulness of their faithfulness. In this pastoral prayer, Paul wants the Philippians to know not just the content of his prayer. Hey, I thank God for you. Not even just the the reason because of your partnership. He wants them to imagine what it looks like in Rome, where Paul's at, under house arrest, suffering, alone, 
And yet not alone, because the Philippians are with him in spirit. He wants them to see the emotive tone and tenor of this pastoral prayer. The heart of a pastor for his people. That's what he wants them to read in this letter. It's beautiful. He wants them to be able to imagine the tears that are welling up in his eyes. He wants them to be able to imagine the smile that's expanding on his face because he legitimately loves them. That's a pastor. So what's the application for us? Let God know who you're thankful for today. Let them know why. Let those people know uh, when you're letting God know that you're thankful for them. And, And let those people know why you are thankful for them. We need to be not just a joyful church, but a church that is encouraging. After he reflects on the Philippians, their faithful partnership in gospel ministry, he shares his confidence that these Philippians, they're going to continue to endure and persevere, not only in gospel ministry, but in the faith itself. So that's my second point for us this morning. Paul is confident in their perseverance, confident in their perseverance. Verse 6, and I am sure of this. Stop there. Sure is not the way you and I, we think of sure, right? Like, pretty sure, you know. I'm like 80% sure. Okay. Uh, I can't tell you how often I say that. Uh, Beck will remind me, hey, did you lock the door tonight before we go to bed? Pretty sure. I'm like 80% sure. Yeah, you should probably be 100% sure. Go check it. You're right. You're right. Um, lock check, you know. This is not like, hey, yeah, I think I'm sure. It's, oh, I'm certain. I'm 100% sure. I'm absolutely confident. I have, I'm convinced of something. I'm, I've been persuaded by this. There's no doubt in my mind, I'm sure. Well, sure of what, Paul? Read on. I'm sure of this. That he who began to work in you, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me paraphrase what Paul's saying here. He is saying that the Philippians will persevere in faithfulness in gospel ministry until Christ returns. He is saying the Philippians will endure, they will persevere in faith and in their salvation until Christ returns. And let me just say something. That is a bold thing to say. It's a tremendously bold statement. I mean, who does he think he is to say something like that? Isn't it a little presumptuous to tell somebody, hey, you're for sure going to go to heaven and not hell when you die? It's a bold, bold statement. Isn't that a little close to playing the role of the Holy Spirit in someone's assurance of salvation? What I'm saying, I guess I'm, I'm pressing this because I, I want us to really think about it. Couldn't that give someone a sense of false assurance? Does does Paul have the right to say that? Is he really, with all integrity and full honesty, a clear conscience, able to tell these Philippians that they will not commit apostasy along the way, that they will not depart from the faith along the way? Is he able to do that? Yes. Yes. Why? Well, What's Paul's confidence rooted in? Look at the text. It's just right there. 
I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So unless we know who the He is here, we, we might continue to speculate. Is Paul right in saying that? Is that appropriate for him to say that? Spoiler alert, the he is not Paul. It's God. Paul is confident in their perseverance to the very end. Not because of him or how great of an apostle or preacher he was. Not, not in them, but in him, in God. That's where his confidence is rooted It is in God who began a good work in them. Well, what's the good work? It's their salvation. Specifically, it's their regeneration. It's when God made them alive together with Christ through the proclamation of the gospel that Paul preached in Philippi. I want you to listen to this testimony of one of the first converts in Philippi. Acts 16 Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There was new life that was happening as as Paul was preaching this gospel. People were being born again, and Lydia was experiencing that. She experienced that. Why? Because the Lord opened her heart. God was making spiritually dead people alive in Christ. Listen, he was making spiritually dead people who were worshipers of God Come alive in Christ. Because Lydia, this, this lady, this is her testimony. Before Christ, I was a hard-working, industrious woman. I sold purple goods. I was a worshiper of God even. I was one of the very few people who came to that riverside and worshiped God. But I was not worshiping in spirit and in truth because I was not yet in Christ. I was not yet in Christ because I had not been born again. I had not been born again because I had not yet heard the gospel of what Christ did so that I could be saved from my sin. But she heard it, and God opened her heart, and she became alive. I referenced this verse last week, John 3, 3. Write it down. Because this is maybe the most important passage in the Bible. He tells a religious person, Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not possible. Won't happen. I mean, you got to ask. you got to be leaning on your seat forward and going, well, how can I be born again? How is someone born again? One is born again when they hear the gospel and he does a good work in them. When God opens their heart, God does something, a work that is so profound, it is impossible for anyone else to do it. It's only him. And it causes them to come alive spiritually. Yes, they may be alive physically, They may be at worship services, but they're still dead as a corpse on the inside. God must do this work. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 reminds us that although many rejected Jesus in his earthly ministry, there were some who received him. It says, to all who 
did receive him who believed in his name. He gave the right to become something, to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born, and that's not physical birth, that's new spiritual life birth. They were born, how? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does that mean? They were born again, not of blood, not because they were born into a Christian family. Their Christian heritage could not save them. Although that Christian heritage, I'm sure, presented opportunities for them to hear the gospel, for them to be born again and put their faith in Christ, but it could not save them. Not of blood. Not of the will of the flesh. They couldn't save themselves. They could not make themselves born again. Just as a baby can't make itself born the first time, neither can anyone make themselves spiritually alive. Nor of the will of man. Someone else can't want it for you. Someone else can't do it for you. Listen to me closely, friends. There are no plus ones in heaven. People cannot hold on to your hand as you enter glory and you bring them with you. Not of the will of man, but of God. This is God's doing. So, what's the application for us? What should we, how should we respond to this? This work that God begins and ultimately he finishes. Don't get comfortable with proximity to Jesus. Proximity to Jesus is not enough. Being raised in a Christian home is not enough. Christian heritage is not enough. Being involved in Christian activities is not enough. Christian service is not enough. Being around Christian people is not enough. Do not turn to anyone or anything for salvation or assurance of your salvation or perseverance in salvation except Christ and Him alone. Being in proximity of Jesus is still being, look at this, separated from Jesus. No, how, no matter how close the proximity is, still separated. It's not enough. Nearness to Christ is not enough. You must be in Christ. You must be birthed into his kingdom. You must be born again into him. You must believe into him. Not just believe he existed, not just believe he did some wonderful things, but you must go, what he did was necessary for me. What he did was what I did not do. He loved God perfectly. He loved his neighbor perfectly. I have it. He has. I'm trusting in him so that if God were to ask me, when I die or Christ returns, why should I let you in to the kingdom of heaven? You say, because of him, not me. Because of Jesus. I have taken refuge in his mercy and he promised me that all who receive him, all who believe in his name, will become children of God, being born into his family. And they will persevere to the very end. I want to give you three, four reasons 
why you can be confident that if you've been born again, if you are in Christ today, that you are going to make it to the finish line. Four reasons. And it's all because of God. Number one, it's God's plan. Romans 8.30 says it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Let's stop there. Those whom he predestined are those whom God chose to save before the foundation of the world. Those whom he has elected, he called. What does that mean? He called them to come to him to enter into Christ through the gospel of his cross and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins by faith alone. And those whom he called, Romans 8.30 says, he also justified. What does that mean? It means that he made them right before God in his sight. That means that he declared them right. He declared them righteous. How? How are we justified? By faith alone. There is no justification for someone trying to enter into the kingdom of God through faith plus their good works. You have to abandon your good works and trust in his alone to enter into the kingdom of God and live. And those whom he justified by faith, he also glorified. This is so significant because glorification is something that happens to us after Christ returns. It's when he, he totally eradicates all remaining sin in us. He gives us new bodies and we are with him in perfect harmony. Not even tempted to sin. Glorification, that's what that is. And yet Paul says, those whom he justifies, he also glorified. That's past tense. So when Paul says, I'm sure of this, that Christians who are born again will, will persevere to the end, what he's saying is, it's like it's already happened. That's how sure it is. Not those whom he justified, he will glorify. Those whom he justified, he's also glorified. I'm certain of it. Why? Because that's God's plan. And that's God's promises to us. Man, I had to cut out a lot from, from this. There's so many promises. Let me just read two for you. From John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father, Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives to me, those whom he predestined, all that he gives to me, they will come to me. Not maybe. It's going to happen. Every single one of them. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you might be here and you might be, man, I think I've entered in. I put my faith in Christ. But was there any point in time along this pilgrimage that he might go rejected? Not again. That was the 80th time. Not again. You're out. And the answer is no. Why? Because he says, I will never cast them out. Period. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him from beginning to end. And I will raise him up on the last day. You can be confident in your perseverance because of his promises. So his plan, his promises, and God's power. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope that will never die. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you 
by who? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Favorite part of the whole thing, verse 6, in this you rejoice. (laughs) Yeah, I, I will rejoice in the perseverance of the saints because it's worthy of it. God's plan, God's promises, God's power, and God's praise. Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, here it is again, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Our perseverance is from God so that there's not a single one of us when we enter glory that can look back and say, it was my true grit that got me here. That every single one of us would say, it was the grace of of God Almighty that got me here from beginning through the middle and at the end. Praise God. This good work God did in the Philippians, it didn't end on their regeneration, their salvation. It continued. It was the beginning of their church. It was the beginning of their service to Jesus Christ. It was the beginning of their gospel ministry in Philippi. It was the beginning of their partnership with Paul in the gospel. Paul gives a defense for his confidence. He just, he just shared where it's rooted, but here's his defense, verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So having established that their perseverance is rooted in God, he is saying, look, I have no doubt in my mind that you'll persevere to the end. I know you. I know that you're a partaker of grace. I've known you for over a decade. And it's not that I've seen good things that came from you. It's that I saw God powerfully working in and through you over this course of time. You've been faithful to the gospel. What's Paul's response to all this faithfulness, to God's being faithful to the Philippians, uh, to Paul and bringing the Philippians in a partnership with him, to, to God's faithfulness in providing perseverance for both Paul and for the Philippians. How does he respond? Verse 8, for God is my witness, he can see my heart, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus. He's so stirred up with love. For the Philippians. And his love is pouring out for him on these pages because of the reality that is coming. The eternal, unwavering, inseparable bond and union that they have in Christ with one another. So yes, Paul's confident in their perseverance and yes, he's right to be. This is my third and final point. In all that confidence, he is prayerful for their progress. In all that confidence, Paul doesn't say, okay, you guys, you know, you're you're saved. Like, it's a a sure thing. You can go ahead and, you know, sit on your hands 
and, and you don't have to do anything. You don't, you don't have to serve the Lord. You don't have to partner with me. We don't have to, we, you know, it's a done deal. Let the world die. You're going to live. No. He, he prays for their progress in the faith. Look at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's pastoral heart is on display right here. He wants them to experience spiritual growth. He's confident they will persevere. And if you are a Christian, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, it doesn't cause you to sit back. It, it creates such a rest in your soul that you are revived to get up and serve the king. You actually are given the energy and the strength and the power to endure suffering, mockery, slander for being united to Jesus. Paul wants them to progress in the faith. He wants them to mature in the same way that I want my toddler, little Archie. I want him to hit these developmental milestones along the way. We're just praying he'll walk, you know. He loves to crawl or be held by me. I want him to grow. Paul wants the Philippians to grow. We should want to grow, right? And we should want to grow in love. When asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Matthew 22. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. True love grows with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment that comes from God's word. It is impossible, impossible to grow in love, to grow in Christian maturity, to grow in Christ-likeness with a closed Bible. It's impossible. It's not my opinion. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, he is praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples, and he says, sanctify them in the truth, and he clarifies, what is the truth? Your word is truth. So, so what is the context of our sanctification, of our growth and maturity in, in Christ-likeness? It's the word of God. That as we are in the context of the word of God, as we have open Bibles and we're fellowshipping together and we're looking at it and we're eating it and drinking it and digesting it, we are being sanctified by the word and the spirit and the fellowship of the saints. However, I'll say this, it does not matter how reformed you think you are, it does not matter how doctrinally sound you think you are, if you are cold and you're without love, your theological prowess and your theological systems are absolutely nothing. 
Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says it's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's a euphemism. What he means is it's annoying and it's unhelpful. I don't think we'll ever bring a noisy, clanging cymbal up on this stage as we worship God together, right? And and when we are without love, that's what we're like in our homes, in the city, with one another. We need the real thing. I had the opportunity to meet with someone that I really respect. His name is Justin Peters. He's a theologian. He's a traveling itinerant evangelist. I met him this summer on an airplane back from L.A., I got to talk with him. I specifically got to talk to him about his personal testimony. (laughs) Justin Peters, he was a seminary graduate. He was a pastor, ordained. He was an itinerant speaker when he realized he was not born again. After years of ministry, he realized, oh, I'm dead. I need to come alive. He was so convicted by the Spirit, he he repented of his sin. He humbled himself at that point in his life and ministry and made it public. I've been dead, but God has made me alive in Christ. He put his faith in him alone. The first person to witness the change in his life, he told me, was his wife. She's his nearest neighbor. That's obvious. And and what he told me was, she said, "You're, you're so much more warm. There's so much more love. Like, you were, you were right about a lot of things before. But now you're, you're right in the most excellent way. In the most helpful way. In the most loving way. Head knowledge, even if it's the right things, it's only facts. Heart knowledge, it knows how those truths impact real people. Help real people people apply in real situations. So Paul's not praying that his people in Philippi would be smarter. He's praying they'd be wiser in the way that they love. One of my favorite lines from the classic Forrest Gump is when he's standing at the the base of that stairwell and Ginny is ascending the stairwell. It's New Year's Eve night and he turns to her and he says, Ginny, And he wants to marry her. He asks to marry her. And and she rejects him. And he says, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. I mean, I would rather know five things in love with them than 500 things and be empty of love, of the love of God. It would be so much better if we were a church that we grew together in loving with what we know for the glory of God. And I'll tell you what, I'm I'm finishing up my doctoral studies this year. I've, I've got a master's degree. And I'll tell you what I've learned over that course of time in a summation, that I am an ignorant man. I mean, I know nothing. But that doesn't discourage me from continuing to learn, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection so that I can love. It certainly doesn't prevent me from being able to love people with what I have learned, and it won't prevent you either. So maybe you're here this morning, you go, I just don't know that much. Love with what you know, and seek to know him more, and love with what you learn from him. He'll teach you with an open Bible. 
We're running out of time. This is excellent love. Look at verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. He wants them to grow in abounding in love with knowledge and discernment so that they can know what is most excellent. It is so much easier to know the difference between good and evil than it is to know the difference between good and excellent. And God, who has loved us so excellently in Christ by sending a perfect Savior to die in our place, he wants us to love more excellently as a church body and as individuals. To approve what is excellent, is not, it's not just knowing what is best, it is choosing what is best. The reason Paul wants their love to grow is so that they would know how to best love in accordance with God's word. So that as church members, we would seek to know how to best love one another. As husbands and wives, we would seek to know how to best love one another. As parents, we would know how to seek to, to love our children best. And as children, look at me, kids, that you would have your Bibles open, that you would know how to best honor your mother and your father and love them as God has loved you in Christ. To give them excellent love, not begrudging love. It is pure and blameless love. He says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure means sincere and authentic. So don't miss this. This is huge, actually. It's not just choosing the, the most excellent love, having the knowledge and discernment to apply. It is having pure, excellent love. You can love excellently on the outside, but what God is wanting is an excellent love that starts on the inside and bubbles over the outside. It's blameless love. It literally means to not stumble. It's a love that's walking firmly in love and obedience to God's word. Not perfectly, but firmly walking in that direction. It also means to not put a stumbling block in front of your neighbor, morally. And I think it's important for us to remember that we should desire to grow in sanctification for the sake of everyone who's looking at us and following in our discipleship, because ultimately, where we stumble, if they follow us, they may stumble in the same potholes. So we should want to pursue personal holiness but true Christians are not blameless in the sense that they're perfect Christians, that they love perfectly in this lifetime. But true Christians are not blameless in the sense that they have all the right theological knowledge in this lifetime. You won't, I won't. Let's just accept that. Mature Christians are those blameless ones who they are aware of their imperfections, and so they are actively pursuing holiness and confessing and forsaking their sin and clinging to Christ's grace and rejoicing in it and bearing fruit by keeping with repentance. That's what maturity looks like, and that's how we mature. Mature Christians are those who are willing to set aside their so-called Christian liberties for the sake of their neighbors. Romans 14, 13 says, Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24 says, All things are lawful, 
but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So whatever you do, in word or deed, whether eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God, and so that you would not be a stumbling block to your neighbor. What's the goal? And we'll close. What's the goal of this prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians? For their progress in the faith. What is he he aiming at, really? It's the glory and praise of God. Look at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's, It's not just producing good works. It's producing good works that glorify God and bring him greater praise. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? And let me, let me put that in more modern terms. What's the purpose of life for people? Specifically people, not squirrels, not birds, not dogs. What's the purpose of your life? What's the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen. That's the kind of knowledge, that's the kind of love that Paul wants the Philippians to grow in, and that is the kind of love that we should desire to grow in as a community. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this pastoral prayer, and we pray that you would increase our faith this morning. God, if if you have awakened some in this room to your grace, if they've been born again and they've put their trust in Christ alone, I pray, God, that, that they would let us know, they'd let myself or another pastor here know, they'd let someone here know that they are now alive in Christ, that the old person is dead, that the new person is alive, and they want to serve him as a bondservant. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to continually remember the people that you've put in our lives that we get to do life and ministry with that we are thankful for and that we would thank you for them and we would remind those folks that we're thanking them. We're thanking God for them. And why? I pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest in your promise and your power to finish what you started in us so that we would persevere to the end. I pray, God, that you would Give us the desire and discipline to be in your word that we might grow and progress in Christian love and maturity for the good of others and for your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.